The rest of us are going to be in Luke chapter 6. So it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, according to Luke, who is the historian writing things down. And I uh, invite you to open your Bibles with me if you would. I want to read a memo uh, by way of introduction before we actually get into the text of Luke. Perhaps some of you have heard this before and others haven't. The memo is addressed to Jesus, son of Joseph. And it is from the Jordan Management Consultants. Dear Sir, the memo reads, Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, place placed personal interest above company, company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a skeptical attitude that would tend to undermine morale. Uh, Matthew has been blacklisted by the Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. Makes a fair enough point, don't you think? Um, with that in mind, we're going to look at Jesus choosing the 12 disciples. Jesus choosing the 12 apostles. That's where we are in our study of Luke in chapter 6. And this morning, uh, we're going to delve into those details. Um, thought I'd keep it simple this morning and try to have this be a little bit more topical so that we might understand apostles better. Um, because it's something that's important to understand in understanding the Bible. Uh, how do apostles relate to disciples? Uh, what role do apostles play? Uh, why did Jesus choose these? Why didn't he choose other ones? Uh, and so we'll look at the text, but we'll look beyond the text. Pastorally, I really want you to be in a place where you read your Bible well, and if I can help you read your Bible better to kind of put the pieces together, I think it might be helpful. And so what we'll do is uh, ask and answer 12 questions about the 12 apostles that should lead us into worshiping Jesus better. Okay, so that's where we'll end. I think that's the right place to end. So 12 questions answering uh, to answer about the 12 apostles that ultimately will lead us to be uh, hopefully more faithful Christians. And with that in mind, let's go ahead and read the first two verses, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 6, where it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, he being Jesus, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve 
whom he named apostles. And we'll look at each of them in a little bit more detail in just a little while. But a couple of observations just for, for you to make and for me to make. You read those verses and you, you see that whatever he's doing is of paramount importance. That, that our Lord is going to go and he's going to pray all night to the Father, uh, no doubt in light of the decision he's going to make. And we're going to see that the apostles play such a crucial role uh, in this thing we know as Christianity. This massive decision calls for this massive prayer time. It's a big deal. And he chooses the twelve as a result of that. Question number one, and some of these will just give real simple answers in some more detail. But question number one is, what is an apostle? What is an apostle? And someone told me a long time ago, Stanley Toussaint uh, wrote a commentary on Matthew and Galatians. I remember him saying again and again and again, this real small statured man, but he would say with so much force, I never will forget, and I don't want you to ever forget, I'll pretend to be small and forceful for a second, if that's what it takes. He said, when you read apostle, think authority. And he said it, A hundred times if he said it once. When you read apostle, think authority. When you read apostle, think authority. And and it's served me so well, and I think it'll serve you well, when you're reading your Bible, if you think an apostle is one who has unique authority. There are other words used in the Bible, for example, like the word for messenger. I'm not saying apostles are less than messengers, but they're even more than messengers. Angelos, where we get the word angel. It's an important role, and angels may speak with the authority of God, uh, but it may just be a more generic kind of thing. Apostle is unique authority. When an apostle speaks, they're an apostle of someone else, and that means they carry their authority when they're speaking. That has been so helpful, not just as a pastor for me, but in my Christian life, reading the Bible, oh, when Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior... That helps me to know that Paul isn't just sharing his two cents in 1 Timothy. He's writing as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has the authority of Jesus Christ. That's why I've said so many times and and would encourage you to think in terms of your New Testament is red letter. Not just the four Gospels where Jesus is speaking. If Paul really is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he speaks, it's as if Jesus is speaking. It's all red letter. And Jesus is going to choose 12 apostles, 12 official representatives that will end up being the foundation for the church that will carry out ministry in his name, in his power, on his behalf. What is an apostle? An apostle is one who has the authority of another in their speaking, in their acting. And here we have apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's helpful to go back to verse 13 and, and compare them to two disciples. Let's go back there and uh, really want you to get this. Um, for some of you, you're saying this is way too simple. Awesome. Glad you've arrived at simplicity. I mean, ser- seriously, I'm glad. But for everybody else, let's make sure we have this straight. And when day came, he called his disciples. Just know that he's got all kinds of disciples. Hundreds of disciples. A disciple is a follower. He has many followers. John 6.66, easy to remember because it has bad connotations. John 6.66, many of his disciples 
after he talked about things like election, <laughs> many of his disciples stopped following him. They stopped being disciples. There were many of them. So here we have his disciples. That's the big group and chose from them 12. So now he narrows it down to 12 disciples. That's how, what we normally think of as disciples whom he named apostles. So have that straight in your head. He's got many followers, and then he's got the unique group of 12 followers, and he's going to call them not just followers, he's going to give them unique, what's the key word? Authority is what he's going to do. He's going to give them unique authority. One person put it this way, they are commissioned representatives who possess the authority of the sender. Another textbook said this, an apostle is a title of great authority because of the nature of the one making the commission. That would be Jesus. One Jewish source put it rather um, boldly. The one sent by the man is the man himself. Maybe that's overstatement, but we, we need to capture this idea and this reality for Jesus to choose apostles. It's no wonder he goes to his father and prays the way he does. It's no wonder he does. It's a huge, big deal. Next question. How important are they? Well, I guess we've kind of already answered that question. Really important, right? How important are they? They're crucially important. If you would turn to another passage to sort of get some grounding in this, it would be Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20 is one of those classic key texts when it comes to apostleship. If you're in Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, or just listen. Or just pull down the menu on the iPad, um, Right? Ephesians 2.20, how important are apostles? How about paramount, of paramount importance? Ephesians 2.20 uh, tells us in a context talking about the church and the church being built, and it says in uh, 20, built, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Wow, that, that, that is really important. What's the relevance of doing a, a topical kind of study on apostleship? Well, it's really important if the church is important. And since Jesus is the cornerstone, the very, very foundation, and built upon him are the apostles and prophets, it's got my interest. I'm very interested. If we're part of the church and Jesus said he would build his church and Christ is building his church, it's important to know where our foundation is. And our foundation, which doesn't need to be rebuilt, I'm getting ahead of myself, Christ built upon Christ, around Christ would be the apostles. This is really important for us to have an understanding of apostles. It's no wonder Jesus is praying the way he's praying. It makes me think of Peter, an apostle, Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 16 that Peter is the rock and that Jesus is going to build his church and it's in relationship to Peter. And sometimes that makes us Protestants kind of nervous. I'm not going to re-preach a sermon on Matthew 16. You could certainly listen to a sermon on Matthew chapter 16. But I don't shy away from that in light of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. Christ is the cornerstone and the foundation would be apostles and prophets. And Peter is certainly an apostle. He's going to build on that. 
really critical for us. It's critical for us in the writing of Scripture as well. They are. John chapter 16, verse 13. He's going to lead them uh, by the power of the Spirit into all the truth. Um, they're, they're vital and important to us. Next question. Number three. Why 12? Why 12? Maybe just because that was the number Jesus chose. Let's not make too much out of it. But later on in Luke, in Luke chapter 22, he says the apostles are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. They're going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. Now exactly what that looks like and exactly what that means, I don't plan to go into. But Jesus himself makes a connection. He makes a connection. I'm not sure how this is going to work out either because I'm not really sure if Matthias or Paul is going to be involved in this. Maybe they'll have to do rock, paper, scissors. I mean, I, I don't know how it works. Somehow it'll work out because we have an extra one. Um, the reason I bring it up, why 12? There, there's some kind of similarity. There's some kind of connection between the way God has worked in the past and how he is working and how he will work in the future. And they're not completely separated even though they're separation. In other words, there's a reason why he chooses 12. We don't know exactly why, but it probably wasn't just because 12 makes a dozen. Um, there, there's some kind of connection between how God has worked redemptively in history. and um, Yes, there's meant to be separation and newness, but that doesn't mean it's entire separation and newness. Number four, who were they? Who were these guys? Now, I'm not going to stand up here and just read the notes that you already have in your study Bible. Um, <laughs> but as we work through the text, I'll just make a few commentary comments as we go to, just for the record. Um, but we're not going to, that's not the focus of this morning. Um, but at least to acknowledge some things about these guys, I don't expect you to write these down per se, but just who, who were they by way of review in part, Simon, look at verse 14, Simon, whom he named Peter, Peter, by the way, means the rock, the foundation that seems to be indicative of his leadership in all of this. And Andrew, his brother, we've already learned they're both fishermen, so we know something about them. And James and John, elsewhere they're called the sons of Zebedee, they're called the sons of Thunder. They're also Galilean fishermen who worked with Peter and Andrew. Um, they're Jesus' cousins because of their mother, Salome, and she is Mary's sister, according to John 19.25 and Matthew 27 and Mark 15, things you don't have to write down, but just to know that they're, they're people we know something about more than just this. Um, James is going to end up being an early church martyr in Acts chapter 12. Then we have John, uh, who is the beloved disciple. Next on the list, and Philip. Don't know a lot about Philip. Um, he's from Bethsaida. He introduced Nathan to Jesus. Then Bartholomew was next. Uh, perhaps also, he's also known as Nathaniel. Verse 15 gives us the next guy, Matthew. We know about Matthew. Matthew is also known by the name what? Levi. We learned about him already. Matthew does what by occupation? Physical therapist? No, he's a tax collector is what he is. We'll come back to that and the importance of that a little bit later. Next on the list, and Thomas. Uh, also known as Didymus, famous for being what? Thomas the Doubter is what he's famous for. Um, tradition says, we don't know this for certain, but he later took the gospel either to Persia or India. Um, and James, the son of Alphaeus, 
This is not James who is the half-brother of Jesus from Galatians 1.19 because Jesus' brothers didn't believe until later, according to John chapter 7. Next on the list, Simon, who was called the Zealot. That's rather intriguing, and we'll talk about why later. But a zealot, he's a a political activist, Jewish nationalist, right-winger. Historically, you history buffs, or those of you who've been to the Middle East and been to Masada, uh, Masada is where the Jewish nationalists, these Jewish nationalists would have been, and they would have fought around 70-ish off the top of my head um, against the Roman government. And so it is important, I'll talk about why later, just to, to see that this guy is, is, is to the far right, Jewish nationalist, uh, on, and Jews, Jesus chooses them. That's what's meant by zealot. Verse 16, and Judas, the son of James. I don't know much about him other than he got a bummer of a name. Um, you know how that goes? It was a common name, but ever since it's like Judas, man. What were we thinking? If we only would have known ahead of time. Um, I'm kind of amused sometimes just thinking about people who, who are looking for names for their kids. Oh, a Bible name. Oh, isn't Judas a Bible name? You know, I'm sure it's happened before. We were in the hospital for one of our kids and, you know, we're fighting like cats and dogs. We've got to leave, you know, and what are we going to name them? Is that when I wanted to name one of our kids Ivan? <laughs> so good thing I didn't win. <laughs> Ivan the Terrible was a... Anyway, I liked Ivan. It just sounded tough. Anyway, it shows you what a bad husband I am and how unwise I am and what a great wife I have. But anyway, um, and she wanted some name like, I don't know what. I'm sure it's a wonderful name, but um, I wasn't agreeable at the time. Finally, Molly had this great, great idea. She said, how about Josiah? And I was like, Josiah? Josiah's a cool name. Josiah's a king. Uh, Josiah's a good king. Josiah tore down the high places of idolatry. Josiah reinstated the law of God. Good. But let me look up some passages just to make sure. <laughs> you know? Because you're like, oh, Bible name, Judas. Seriously. I mean, people are, why am I talking about this? Because I needed to lighten it up a little bit. It felt a little bit too much like a lecture. Poor guy. Judas, not Iscariot. Um, Needing lots of counseling later on, you know. Um, we don't know a lot about that guy. Uh, and then Judas Iscariot, uh, we know a lot about him and we'll learn more about him. It says, who became a traitor. More about Judas in a little bit. Number five, next question. Were their roles equal? Were their roles equal? They seem to equally be apostles, but um, no. Because how much do you know about Peter? Peter. And how much do you know about Judas, not Iscariot? I don't know much about Judas, not Iscariot, but I know a lot about Peter. First uh, Peter, Second Peter, Book of Acts. Um, he's mentioned Galatians. I know, I know a lot about Peter. You know a lot about Peter. And it's probably on purpose because they would have had different kinds of roles. What's so interesting, and many of you have done this, but what's so interesting and uh, people have uh, done through the years is they've categorized the different lists. Guess who's always first? It's Peter. Makes sense. He's called the rock. Peter's the leader. Peter's the key guy. They, they do have different roles. Just to be a little bit technical about it, here's, here are the observations. Peter is always listed first and Judas is always last, unless he's not on the list like in the book of Acts. Um, the first four are always Peter, Andrew, James, and John, though not always in that order. There are three groups of four which uh, lead the position in each group. Uh, the lead position in each group is always Peter, Philip, James, son of Alphaeus. 
The idea is that even amongst the group, there were leaders of leaders, is the observation. It seems to be a good observation. They didn't all do the same thing. They were all apostles. But they had unique responsibilities, unique roles. Next question, uh, why the diversity? Why the diversity? I'll admit we're guessing here. But let's think biblically. Imagine that at a church on a Sunday morning. Um, Let's think biblically. Fast forward to the New Testament, and in the New Testament, we have a lot of emphasis on, on diversity and unity. The diversity is natural. The unity comes because we're in the body of Christ, and so you don't have male and female distinctions when it comes to equality before God. They're the same, Galatians would say. You don't have Jew and Gentile, same Galatians would say, Ephesians would say, slave, free, male, female, Jew, Gentile or Greek, one in Christ Jesus. It seems, because we have the benefit of reading backward now, Jesus picks a pretty diverse bunch. Oh yes, you've got the fishermen crew. But then you also have others who have more education and the big, con- the big contrast I think that sticks out to me would be you've got the political right-wing activist nationalist Jewish guy, zealot. And who would be the opposite? Matthew, the tax collector, sellout, sold his soul. Arr! They would naturally be born enemies. They would hate each other's guts. Fix both of them, makes both of them apostles. Because they're going to be united in Christ. Good anticipation. Good, good, good foretaste of things to come because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even those guys who would be sworn enemies could be friends. Power of the gospel is going to end up coming out even in anticipation of what Jesus is doing in the diversity. Number seven, another question. Um, why not pick better ones? How would you answer that at the dinner table? Why not pick better disciples? I think it's a fair enough question. I mean, when you look at these guys, they're not very educated by and large. In Acts chapter 4, when they they hear Peter uh, and others preaching, their conclusion is, how could they be doing these things? And how could they be so profound in what they say? Because we know they're not educated. Through their speech, dialect, choice of vocabulary, way they look, don't know. Hands smell like fish permanently, don't know. Why, why would he pick these guys? Why would he pick Thomas, who's going to be known as a doubter? Peter, a denier. Judas, son of the devil, who would betray Jesus. After all night in prayer, how about that? You pray all night and you're the second person of the triune Godhead. You're the eternal son. You pray to your father all night and you make a decision to choose Judas? Why, would he, why didn't he pick better ones? How about, let's answer it on two levels. How about so that for time and eternity, here right now, 2013 at Omaha Bible Church, we would have a good, profound reminder that Christianity isn't about Peter. Because Peter is a denier. Christianity isn't about Judas, not Iscariot. Christianity isn't about Paul. What a refreshing reminder to us that Paul even said he's the chief of sinners. 
When he did say, follow me, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. What a great reminder for us right here, right now, that Christianity isn't about the followers of Christ. That Christianity is about Christ. Jesus picked these guys on purpose. His prayers were answered. Surely, his father who would only give him what he would benefit from. That's practical for us. It's helpful. Maybe another level of answering this would be that Jesus chooses these guys, not better ones, because he knows full well that they will not be loyal to him. I don't want to talk about Judas too much yet. We'll talk about him in a little bit. But he knows they're not going to be loyal. And it's not just Judas. By the way, what's the difference between Peter and Judas? Got not much. In fact, later we'll get into it where, where Jesus talks to Peter about it. Satan desired to sift you. But Jesus prays for him. He prays for him in a way that would sustain him even through his rejection so that he wouldn't be just like Judas. Here's where I want to go by way of application because I got to go here a lot. And you probably do too unless you haven't been a Christian very long and you just haven't gotten a good enough slug to the midsection. Jesus, we're told, sympathizes with us elsewhere. He therefore knows what it's like to go to the cross alone. That's helpful. Now let's not get a Messiah complex. We're not him. We're different. I mean, it's totally not the same. But the Bible does teach he sympathizes with us. So it's applicable for us to look to the Lord Jesus Christ as an example. He's more than an example, but he's not less than an example. And to say, what can I learn from him? Let's learn this, my friends. Let's learn that he went to the cross and he went to the cross alone. Because the rock failed him. That is so helpful pastorally. It's so helpful for me as a Christian. I got to remind myself time and time again, Jesus went to the cross alone. If you don't remember that, it's just going to be really, really extraordinarily difficult to cope They all left him in one way or another. It's good to know. Just keep reminding yourself of that. Not that you're Jesus, not that I'm Jesus, but none of them were loyal to him. That's just good built-in counseling for us. I'm reminding my wife yesterday, just remember, Jesus went to the cross alone. If you don't remember that, you're going to be a bitter person because people are going to let you down and they're not going to be loyal and they're not going to be faithful and they're not going to do the right things. But then all of a sudden, we're not acting and thinking like Christians. We are supposed to imitate Christ and he sympathizes. And so you know what? I can do it. I can do it and I don't have to be a bitter person. 
who will never, ever commit myself to another person again because I've been burned too many times. Don't be that guy. You're going to want to be that guy or that gal. I'm going to want to be that guy or that gal. Remember Jesus Christ. Purposefully, I think, out of love for us, chooses these guys to show us that salvation is not by following, it's by Him. But secondarily, He sympathizes. He totally sympathizes. God, I'm alone. I'm all. I'm. I, I, I feel let down. And yeah. In a loving and kind and gracious way, Jesus could say, "Tell me about it." And I think I'll probably die with at least two friends. <laughs> and you probably will too. <laughs> you'll you'll have somebody. He didn't have anybody. That is a helpful balm when it comes to our struggles. I'm thankful for that. Well, that was worth the price of admission uh, for my own soul. I hope it is for you. I just find myself drawn to Jesus in that way more and more over time. Um, now let's go to the next one. Um, number eight, why Judas? Why Judas? Do notice in verse 13 of chapter 6, and when day came, he called. That's a really strong word that Jesus that is used of him. He called. Jesus, the eternal son, calls his disciples and chose. That's, that's another really strong word again. These, these, these have election overtones from elsewhere in Scripture. He, he chose sovereign uh, calling, choosing from them twelve whom he named apostles. Please remember, this is after all night of praying. He, he gets the right answer from his father, no doubt, and he, he's not hard of hearing. And what does he do? He executes, he follows through, and he chooses the right ones. And you go, what? Why Judas? Let's think about this. How would you answer that at lunchtime today? Because I think most of you could answer it, but it's a healthy thing for us to work through this together, maybe. Why Judas? Because Jesus knows that for him to be the redeemer, there's got to be the redemptive act, and the redemptive act has to do with his atoning work where blood will be shed, and on the way from point A to point B, there's going to be betrayal. He's got to get to the cross somehow, and guess how he's going to get there? It's through Judas. It's most certainly through Judas. You say, why is that important? It sounds just theological and heady. How about this? It causes me to, to, to reflect upon, again, I trust this guy. I trust this great Savior. He knew what he was doing. This is his plan and purpose. He loved us enough to give himself up for us. Part of that is even him strategically choosing the guys that we would say are the wrong guys because they're the wrong guys on purpose. I can worship God for that. <laughs> he loved you enough to choose Judas. Because it's part of the plan and purpose. In John 6, if you just want to listen attentively, um, we, we get a better flavor for this, I think, of Jesus knowing full well. John 6, verse 70, uh, it says, Did I not choose you, the twelve? You say, why is he saying that with such emphasis did i not he's being adamant did i not choose you did i not select you election overtones sovereign choice of god did i not 
choose you, the twelve, and then it says, and yet one of you is a devil. Let it be known here and now that all of this is on purpose. Jesus, why do you keep talking about suffering? Why do you keep talking about betrayal? Why do you keep talking about all this stuff? And, and, he, and he has to keep telling them in different ways. You, you need to know that I chose you and one of you is a devil. Let me start connecting dots here. And for me as a Christian and looking outside and seeing the whole picture, and I hope for you, you say, he, he's a great savior. He's, he's a great savior to have such a plan. You know, it reminds me of Acts chapter 4 where it's not talking about Judas, but it's talking about the people of Israel and how they gave Jesus over and how they crucified Jesus according to the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God. This happened. That's what's going on here. He chose Judas because Judas was the path circumstantially to redemption. Don't quote that out of context. It could sound horrible. He's going to allow Judas to act according to his own nature, which is to do the wrong thing and have that be plan, uh, a plan, part of the plan and purposes of God. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, the one of, one of the twelve, again for emph- emphasis, was going to betray him. Number nine, next question. Were they infallible? Were they infallible? What do you guys think? I think we'll probably say no. Um, you know, anybody who's ever read much of the Bible at all is going to go, man, if I have to defend the infallibility of the apostles, I'm in trouble. I'm going to have to do some serious, I'm going to have to take a lot of Bible classes to learn how to defend the infallibility of the apostles. I probably have to get a PhD in Bible. <laughs> Because you've got failures all over the place. I mean, infallibility of of Peter, you know, denying Jesus multiple times. That doesn't look very infallible at all. And then we try to make it nicer, you know, and we go, well, you know, that that, that was just for a time, but but things got all better. He became infallible once the, the Spirit came, and once he had that unique kind of Spirit that he didn't have before, then he did all the right things, and and now now we can have it be... Well, you might want to read Galatians. <laughs> Galatians chapter 2, specifically, verse 11. Paul writes, But when Cephas, speaking of Peter, no doubt about that, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was infallible. <laughs> I opposed him to his face. I mean, this is like a disrespect kind of thing if he hadn't done anything wrong because he stood condemned. Oh, he's still making mistakes. At times, he's not acting apostolically. He's not infallible. I find it so interesting that in Acts 17, when you learn about the the faithful people from Berea, why are they faithful? When they heard Paul the Apostle teaching, they examined the Scriptures, the Old Testament texts, carefully to see if these things were so. Is he preaching a biblical message? Is it actually lining up? They're being discerning. And they're commended for that. If he's infallible, they should have been scolded for that. How dare you question the infallibility of an apostle? They're totally questioning him. They affirm him. 
But they affirm him because what he says is biblical. So are they infallible? Well, no, they're not infallible. How does this relate to the Bible and things that they wrote? Because apostles wrote scripture or those closely associated with the apostles. But the Bible doesn't tie infallibility to them, even if it ties the trust, it ties trustworthiness to the scripture because God moves and guides those individuals to have the scripture say the right thing. That's Second Peter chapter 1. And it's different. It's a different kind of thing. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. Number 10, are there more? Are there more disciples? Or excuse me, apostles? What do you think? It's kind of a weird Sunday. This is like a topical classroom thing. Hope it's not a complete crash and burn. I really do feel pastoral about it, trying to help you to think through issues related to apostles. Were there more than just these? Matthias would be one, Acts chapter 1. You've got to replace Judas. Um, there's another one. Um, Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, would just be one passage where he talks about his apostleship. So he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. So, so there's another one, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. Um, there were others who were called apostles at times in a less technical sense. There are the twelve. Judas goes, Matthias comes, Paul is added. So there are the apostles. Some other times in the Bible, the word apostle is used. It might be translated a different way because the intention based upon the context is meant to show it's different. Um, it's used in a non-formal technical way. Acts 14, Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 8, Philippians chapter 2. But historically, Christians haven't read those as anything even close to these guys. They're sent with an authoritative message kind of thing. Unique purpose. And then it's over. Number 11, we're going to do 12 of these. So number 11, are there any today? Are there any today? And then number 12. <laughs> That's what I would do if I were a politician. Um, are there any today? How would you answer that question? I would say absolutely there are. They're in heaven. <laughs> they're in heaven. I think they're apostles today. In heaven, I don't think there are any apostles here. Because apostles, among other things, qualified to be an apostle because they had to see the resurrected Jesus bodily. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul defending his apostleship, because apostleship's a big deal. It's not a small deal. It's a unique big deal. And people were questioning his apostleship and claiming apostleship themselves. And he draws the line. And among other things, he makes it clear, I've seen the risen Jesus. I qualify. And so now for millennia, Christians have used that as a litmus, as one of the key litmus tests. And they've said, the guys on religious programming on television, on the Trinity Broadcasting Network or wherever it might be, are not apostles. Because they haven't seen the risen Christ. First Corinthians 9, 1 would make that a requirement. Not only that, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the foundation. How many times do you need to build a foundation? 
If Christ is building the church and it looks like a household, it's called that, you don't have to keep rebuilding a foundation. If you carry the logic out, if you have to keep rebuilding the foundation, then you have to keep somehow having a new cornerstone. And that doesn't make any sense. Christ's work is finished once and for all. And built upon that would be the foundation, apostles and prophets. They're associated with revelation, with new revelation. Well, we don't necessarily need that anymore because we have scripture is how the argument goes biblically, but also historically. So now historically, when you look at church history, remember, you can prove anything with church history. There's always going to be different views. But I think I have integrity in saying, by and large, general consensus, there have always been extremes, has been, even as early as the earliest centuries, to speak of the apostles in the past tense. Because they're associated with new revelation. They're associated with Jesus. And I find myself most comfortable because of Ephesians 2.20 foundation, um, because of requirement you've got to see the risen Christ, because secondarily, but it's there of church history and what Christians have been saying, to say, I think they're apostles today, but only in heaven. But only in heaven. Now there's something in me that would like to play the apostle card. I would like to tell you I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go get me a coffee. Um, (laughs) And I would like to say more serious things than that sometimes. You see why someone would want to have that. There's a lot of authority and a lot of power with apostleship. Um, I think it's dangerous. What you do see, though, is where there's an emphasis on continuing new revelation, there's going to be an emphasis on apostles. Today, you don't have to see the risen Christ, which I would also believe is dangerous. And historically in church history, it's known to be dangerous. So my pastor's heart says, this is worth talking about a bit. When someone claims to be an apostle... The next question is, when did you see Jesus physically, bodily raised from the dead? It's a good question. I remember sitting behind C.J. Mahaney at a conference one time. I think I I won't name the person who asked, um, but someone uh, was next to me and they were thankful for C.J. Mahaney and they asked for a book to be signed and uh, were thankful and uh, whatever it might have been. And they said, so... Can I ask you a question? You claim to be an apostle, right? He goes, yeah. Can, can I just ask you when? And they, CJ wouldn't let him finish the, 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 the question. When I saw the risen Christ. And he goes, yeah, I was kind of wondering about that. And CJ was super gracious about it and kind. But he clarified and said, you know, I, I, I don't mean that. I don't claim to be that kind of apostle. I like C.J. Mahaney. I think we probably have some C.J. Mahaney books in our bookstore. But you do need to know that historically it's out of bounds. Apostle has to do with authority, unique authority. I don't think we have apostles today. 
he redefined it as a church planter kind of person. I would much rather say I'm a church planter. Um, that's what pastors do. I bring these things up because, again, it's kind of a new trend. It's popular. Be good to think about these things and be discerning about these things. In order to be a church planter, similar to C.J. Mahaney, and this is within the this is within the context. This is not charismania. This is charismatic small C. Reserved charismatic, still calling new revelation as a reality. It's within the camp. So I'm a pastor. This is Omaha Bible Church. So I'm being pastoral. I'm not writing C.J. Mahaney off as as a crazy person. I admire him and I'm thankful for his commitment to the gospel. He's not in the same category as the T.B.N. guys capital A, apostle kind of thing. But I, but I do want to just encourage you to think through the issues of if there are apostles today, typically it's associated with new revelation from God, which really calls into question the sufficiency of Scripture if you connect those dots. And it is something unique and um, something that is not within the, the historic Let's just let me make it more specific. Protestant Reformed tradition to say we have apostles today. Um, I just looked at the website. Um, the founder of the Acts 29 network says today church planters and missionaries are operating out of their gifts of apostleship. They have to be apostles, according to the website. They cannot just be pastors. That's because they get new revelation. At least he does. And I'm not trying to be controversial. But I'm saying it makes me really uncomfortable because we have new revelation from God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, in these last days he's spoken to us as in final revelation. He's spoken to us through his son. Definitive no more than we have Scripture that claims to be sufficient revelation from God. Now, I don't know how to work myself out of this because now I feel awkward. Um, just reading last night, feeling awkward about this, reading about church history and reading through the issues and the text here, and uh, time and time again, apostles, new revelation from God. I think I'm going to be the old stick-in-the-mud fuddy-duddy and just say, you know what? I kind of like the old view. And if I had to venture to guess, if we fast-forward a couple hundred years, if we live that long, this kind of thing we're going through right now is not going to end up being normative. It's going to be a glitch on the screen when we're claiming to have new revelation from God and we're claiming to have apostles. It's not going to be the normative and it changed the whole ship around and we learned that all these other guys were wrong. So take it for what it is. Examine the scriptures to see if these things are so. Um, but when people are telling me that God is telling them things, I'm just getting really nervous. I at least want to say that much. With that said, 
Number 12, we're going to end on the positive. This is the best part of all. How do they help us? How do apostles help us? How can this whole exercise help us? Well, it can help us. First and foremost, the big takeaway for me and all this is going to be, apostles help me by reminding me that salvation is not by being a loyal follower. Please at least get that. The gospel is not discipleship in the sense of if I'm just a good disciple, if I'm just a good apostle, if I'm faithful to the end, then I will be saved. These guys, time and time again, drive the car in the ditch. Time and time again, they do it. The rock Peter totally does. I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to deny you. Denial, denial, denial in front of a little girl. What a wimp, you know? Not that there weren't others involved, but I bring up the point to say, please get out of the rut that I get into and you get into. If I can just be good at this and if I could just be more committed, if I could just keep going and if I could just be a better follower of Peter and just... You're a follower of Peter, all right? (laughs) And so am I. And the Lord Jesus is a great savior of us sinners. Remember that. If these guys failed, no doubt we're going to fail. And we can remember that it was all about him to begin with. I'm so glad that Jesus chose these guys. And I'm so glad that we can realize that Jesus is the savior. Get help from these guys on that level. Father, thank you for our time this morning. And thank you for even hard things that we have to work through and try to sort out. We're thankful for apostles that they can speak authoritatively. We're thankful that they did. We're thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ used them powerfully. Help us to be satisfied with Jesus. Help us to be satisfied with what he has done through his apostles and not always be looking for the next thing. Help us to be committed to Christ by his grace. And Lord, we know that we can stay committed and we can stay committed to following him by the power of the Spirit, not by our own strength. In Jesus' name, amen.